Welcome in. Special Outkick the Show. I am Clay Travis. You might well have heard me converse with this man on his podcast here recently. He is Stephen A. Smith of ESPN, and uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. I think you guys are going to enjoy it, uh, and I can't wait to bring him in. But let's go ahead and bring in Stephen A. now. We did a home and home. I appreciate right off the top you having me on your podcast several months ago when we talked then. You said you would come on. Uh, you asked the questions last time. I'll ask, although I'm sure there'll be questions going back and <laughs> sure. forth uh, as sure. both of us are used to asking and answering questions. So let's start right. off right here. This is a question I always like to, to ask. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be good at radio, writing, and TV because I saw Tony Kornheiser do it and do it so well with the Washington Post, with his local uh, radio show, and then obviously with PTI, which is probably the most iconic, uh, certainly, sports show, I would say, of the last 25 yeah. years or so, beyond a shadow of a doubt. I think you'd probably agree with that, too. So I I'm agree. curious for you, right off the top. You have had success writing. You've had success on radio. You've had success on TV. Which is harder? Which do you like more? How would you assess the different challenges of each discipline? And was it your goal? Was there someone you saw who was good at all three that you sought to emulate in your career in some capacity? Well, I would say to you, the hardest is writing. Um, obviously. So just finished writing a book, a bestseller. I'll never want to write a book again, ever in life. I don't want, I don't want any parts <laughs> of it. Okay. Um, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever had to do. Um, and, and not only that, that's not where my confidence lies. People are usually telling me what a good writer I am. I've never quite believed that totally. I knew I could write a little bit. I can write good enough to be a professional writer, but watching the greats like the Ralph Wiley's of the world and the, the Michael Wilbons of the world, along with the bevy of others. I mean, I in Philadelphia, when I worked for the Philadelphia Inquirer, I thought, Bill, the, you know, Bill Lyon was a poet. Um, you know, people like that. Tony Kornheiser is absolutely fabulous and hysterical. Uh, the list just goes on and on. And, and I was definitely an admirer of Ralph Wiley and the great work that he did. What I enjoy most is is television now radio is right in between because i enjoy radio from the standpoint that you get to really really speak your mind and speak excessively on things and you don't feel as limited but i love having an impact and i don't think anything is more powerful than the visual and i grew up idolizing howard cosell and bryant gumbel and then later on the late great Ed Bradley for 60 minutes. When I thought about, yeah. you know, television, those are the guys. I mean, of course, I learned to love and, and appreciate and revere the Stuart Scotts and the John Saunders of the world. God rest his souls, my former colleagues and the Chris Bermans of the world and others. But Howard Cosell and Brian Gumble definitely stand above the crowd. All right. So you mentioned, I agree with you 100%. Writing is the hardest. If someone out there, let's just start right off the top. If someone out there is watching and they say, I love what Stephen A does for a living. I want to be the next Stephen A Smith. Would you encourage them to begin with writing or due to the decline of newspapers and the challenge, frankly, of jobs, would you suggest some other direction? How how would you suggest 20-year old person listening to us right now becomes the next Stephen A? I would say definitely have versatility because you want to do the writing because it requires research. You can't possibly, you can talk, you can talk out your behind anytime you want to for a couple of minutes, but you can't write that way. You got to have something to say. You have to have something that you're bringing to the table. And I think that that has a lot to do with it. And so writing definitely encourages research. 
it encourages content and substance. And I think that's where it all starts, Clay, and I'm sure you can appreciate that. Obviously, because of the industry itself, particularly with newspapers um, and how it's been basically disintegrating before our very eyes, uh, that's not necessarily where the money is. But in terms of the skill set that you're able to ultimately accomplish and that you can parlay into greater things, even in different genres like television, radio, et cetera, et cetera, I would definitely encourage people to start with writing because of that, because it's going to encourage you to be about substance more than sizzle. And I think that's where it starts. When did you first write something that someone reacted to? in a favorable way. Do you remember, was it in high school? Yeah. Was it in middle school? Maybe it was your mom. Do you remember getting <laughs> encouraged from a writing perspective? It was two times in my life. One was when I was a college student at an HBCU, Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina, when my critical and persuasive writing looked at my essay and said I was a born sports writer. He asked me to write, he asked the class to write essays and I turned in an essay and he said, you're a born sports writer. Let me take you out to lunch and really, um, talk to you about this. And I thought we were going to go down the block, down the road in Winston-Salem, some, 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 one of my favorite soul food, soul food spot called K&W, where you could get a full flow meal, chicken and macaroni and veggies and all this up for $8. You know, I was looking forward to that. Yep. So I thought that's where he was going to take me. And lo and behold, he drove me straight to the Winston-Salem Journal daily newspaper. And I walked upstairs and he took me and lo and behold, who was waiting there for me, the sports editor of the Winston-Salem Journal, who spoke to me for five minutes and then hired me on the spot as a clerk. And that's how my career got started. So that was definitely a very, very impactful. That's moment number one. And moment number two was when I was a high school sports reporter for the New York Daily News in 1993. And I wrote a two page pullout end zone piece on this kid named Carlton Hines, who was a former star high school athlete, but had gotten gunned down in broad daylight in the Bronx at 2.30 in the afternoon. And to get that story, I had to, you know, work the streets, work the angles, the street agents and what have you. I had to talk to drug dealers and folks like that that was connected to that, to the street life, obviously. Um, ultimately had to make connections with his family and stuff like that, where I ultimately got an exclusive interview with his mother, his brothers, his family, to the point where she literally gave me pictures of him sitting, laying in his casket, for crying out loud. Those are the kind of things that happened. And that was clearly the most impactful story because when I did that, and then I showed up to the NABJ, the National Association a black journalism conference and i showed them that end zone piece that i had done for the new york daily news as a high school sports reporter that's when both the philadelphia inquirer and the philadelphia daily news and the washington post and a bevy of other papers were interested in hiring me before i ended up landing at the philadelphia inquirer a couple of months later in october of 1994. all right i'm going to come back to that because i'm fascinated by how you get to where you are but what i read is uh and i try to do a little bit of research you sure. were uh, a basketball player at Winston-Salem State. Uh, I yes, would sir. be curious, what would Stephen A., the prognosticator, say about Stephen A., the basketball player? How would you assess your game back in those days? Uh, that I was allergic to defense. Uh, I had no desire to play <laughs> defense whatsoever. Um, I could really, really shoot the basketball, but I was really light in the behind. I was about 5'9", about 125, 130 pounds soaking wet. And I was basically a street ball. I could handle, I could shoot. 
I could play. Um, and I was certainly good enough to get a college basketball scholarship, but I was incredibly weak because I was so skinny. And when you're growing up in the hood and you're playing on the streets, you're playing on concrete a lot. And by virtue of playing on that concrete, what happens is your knees ultimately get a bit damaged, your knees, your hips and stuff like that. In my case, chronic tendonitis ultimately uh, transit, you know, ultimately evolved into a cracked patella. And that really, really compromised my aspirations as a basketball player. But even if I were 100% healthy, I think I would have been a pretty damn good division two basketball player, but I was too light in the behind um, and not gifted enough to be an elite division one player, let alone an NBA player. So that's how I would classify. Myself. Okay. It's interesting. When did you, everybody has a dream. Every single person, certainly who likes sports, thinks, oh, I'm going to be a pro athlete someday. Right. And yep. maybe it happens when you're 16. Maybe it happens when you're 12. At some point, the cold, hard hand of reality slaps you in the face for most people, right? Was yeah. there a moment in time, I'm sure you dreamed of playing in the uh, in the NBA growing yeah. up. Was there a moment in time where you went up against somebody or you played in a game or you had a moment of recognition where you said, you know what? I, I don't know this is happening for me. Maybe I need well, to have a plan B. It wasn't because of the competition, because that's the beauty. That's the secret source in the sport of basketball. When you can shoot the basketball, when you are, you know, you're a marksman, you believe you can beat anybody. You never believe you're inferior to anybody because everybody yeah. can't shoot. You got guys that can jump out the gym. They can dunk on you. They can do all this stuff. But if they can't shoot, you ain't worried about them. If you can shoot, everybody's got to be worried about you. That's why Steph Curry is so phenomenal. He's the greatest shooter God ever created. We all know this watching him play basketball. And no matter what greatness you see from other people, the Michael Jordans of the world, to the Kobe's and the LeBron's and everybody else, you can't even debate the fact that any of those players would wish they could shoot the way that kid can shoot. And so that's something that's special. And so for me personally, growing up, there was a guy by the name of Lloyd Sweet P. Daniels who was considered like the second coming to Magic Johnson. He was six feet eight with a handle, but he had a lot of issues in school and all of this other stuff, but he was a phenomenal player. And he and I won a couple of summer league tournaments together. You know, he was the star by leaps and bounds, but I would still be in the summer league play averaging 20 to 25 a game. And then I'd turn around and go and play at Winston-Salem State and look like I couldn't score three points, let alone five. Why? Because I was scared the yeah. coach was going to take me out. Whereas in summer league i didn't have to worry about that so it just shows the mental fortitude or the lack thereof that you could have and how that could derail you and then in college at winston-salem state my first year there my first two months there i cracked my kneecap in half i cracked that patella that's when i knew it was over because when they told me i had to have surgery then when they told me i had to go home to rehab because it was a division two program that facilities were not D1 quality in terms of that financial backing and things of that nature. And as a result, my mother's insurance had to pick up the tab for my rehabilitation. When I had to go home and go through that level of rehab, my mother looked me in the face and said, well, there goes that dream. It's not going to happen. So what you going to do now? And I never forget what I said to her. I looked at her. I wasn't depressed about it. I wasn't down about it. I looked at her and I said, I'm going to be in television. That's exactly what I said to her. I'm going to be in television. And I had no idea how I was going to get there. But I said, that's what I'm going to do. And then a few hours later, laying down, thinking about it, my sister reminded me that I could write. And then I focused on my journalism. And I went from there. So is this true that you wrote a column for your student newspaper arguing yep. that the head coach of the basketball team should retire because of health issues? What was the reaction when you wrote that piece? 
Well, I wrote it while I was on the basketball team. That is true. Um, I looked them in the face and told him I was going to write that, which was true. Uh, he cussed me out a little bit and told me to get the F out of his office, go ahead and do what I want to do. And then I went and did it. And then the assistant coaches were really ticked off at me. The chancellor of the school wanted me expelled. Um, and coach Gaines stood up for me. He said, everybody stand down. He wants to be a journalist. He came to me. He looked me in my face. He told me how he felt. He told me why. And he told me exactly what he was going to do before he did it. That's what comes along with his profession. Leave him alone. And that's what saved me from being expelled. What, I don't know I'm, uh, how old Coach Gaines is now. Did you, did no, he, he passed ever away. see you he succeed away in, in the? He passed away in 2005. I think he was like 80, 81 years of age. Did he, so he saw you have some success in the profession then. Did you guys have any relationship after you left oh, the yes. school? He was like a father to me. Uh, he was, he was always, um, he just looked at me and I remember one time we were in practice and, you know, the players were talking to me cause I wasn't there that particular day. I was back home in New York and the player said that he was talking about me and brought me up. And, and then he said, God damn it, that boy wants to be somebody. And that's what he would say about me. He said, he ain't out, he ain't out here messing around. He's on a mission. He's trying to make something happen. And he used to, when, when I would speak to him, he would remind me, well, you damn well better be somebody because the damn sure ain't going to be a basketball player. So you better be something. And you better be something that's going to ultimately make a contribution to HBCUs. And that's something that I swore to him that I would fulfill until my dying day. What do you do now for kids uh, at HBCUs? Well, I've, ge I've generated, I'm, I'm, I'm the ambassador for HBCU Week which was an organization that originated out of Delaware um, and the University of Delaware by a lady by the name of, of Ashley Christopher. And she's phenomenal with what she does. And Mayor Persicki there in town has been helpful a lot in terms of jumpstarting HBCU week. They came to me a few week, uh, a few years ago, uh, 2019, if I remember correctly, asked me to be the ambassador for HBCU week. And since then, I partnered with them and I've helped generate in excess of $70 million in scholarships, actually 65 million in scholarship. I'm sorry for over 12,000 students and counting. That's incredible. That's, I didn't, I didn't know that story. Um, how many kids out there do you think have the ability to be the next Stephen A that just don't get the opportunity to do it? Well, I'm never going to sit up there and say that there aren't an abundance of people that, can't be me. They just need to understand what being me entails. That means putting your head down and willing to put in the work. That means willing to make personal sacrifices for a greater goal. Understanding that everything that glitters isn't gold. It's about the work. Don't look at the 20 minutes or the two hours or whatever it is that I'm on television. Think about the work that I've had to put in. Think about the sacrifices. I remember when a kid came up to me years ago and he said, Mr. Smith, I'm an admirer. I'm a fan. And I just want to talk to you. And I said, what's up? He said, I got this job offer in Seattle. I said, so what's the problem? And he said, well, I'm in love. You know, I mean, I don't want to leave Maryland. I don't, my lady's not coming to Seattle with me, but I don't want to leave. And I said, I can't make that decision for you. Here's all I could tell you. Love don't pay the bills. I said, and at the end of the day, if you don't have anything going for you, you got to take care of yourself because I assure you, if you can't take care of yourself, she's not going to want to have to take care of you, which means she ain't going to be there anyway. So I strongly suggest that you think 
about this decision long and hard. And I use that as an example, uh, just to highlight for folks, it's about the work. You know, when you, you Stephen A. Smith, it's everybody from, you know, people in the industry in the world of sports to somebody like yourself, Clay Travis, and the list goes on and on. Well, guess what? There's a standard that's been a set. There's a standard that's been established. There's a standard that has been exceeded. Are you measuring up to that? Are you bringing that to the table? And are you committed to doing so, to making sure that you have that kind of impact where you resonate? Or are you just looking for somebody to hand you opportunities and hand you rewards that you haven't earned? Um, I've never been about that. I've always been about going after mine and getting mine and being willing to put in the work and make the necessary sacrifices. So what I preach to a lot of youngsters out there, if you're willing to do that, you're damn right you can be me. And I said this years ago, I said the Jay-Z's, the Kobe Bryant's, God rest his soul, the Shaquille O'Neal's, LeBron James and others. You can't be them. They're not the American dream. They're the American fantasy come reality. I said, because it's an aberration. That's a once in a billion shot. I said, but you could be Stephen A. Smith. You can get left back in the fourth grade because you had a first very reading level. You can have dyslexia and work your tail off and overcome that. You can put your head down and work hard and be committed to being the best that you possibly can be and you can end up being successful. Everybody can't be them, but there's millions of people that can be me. I firmly believe that and I stand by that. You said you started at Winston-Salem Journal. That professor takes you there and says you're going to be a sports writer. What was your salary for the first job you ever got? I made $400 a week. $400, $400 a week. week. But which, which was like $400,000. When you're a college student, it's like $400,000. It's like $400,000. Let me tell you something right now. I mean, you're talking to a dude that when I first started in this business, I was living off the tuna fish and Kool-Aid making $15,000. <laughs> $15,300 a year. So for me to get $400 a week as a college student at that time while working for the local paper, that was great. But then what made it even better was the month, uh, was, was the assignment. I'm going to be a clerk. I'm sitting in there. I'm doing agate material and school, you know, all of this other stuff. And they sent me out to do a feature on Wake Forest soccer, which was ranked number three in the nation. And I went to Wake Forest one day. Like I said to the sports editor, Terry Oval, I said, I don't know anything about soccer. The only soccer match I've ever watched was Pele in 1980. I don't know anything about this. He said, tell me how that's my problem. Figure it out. And so I went over there to Wake Forest <laughs> University, and the coach's name was Walt Chiswick. I'll never forget him as long as I live. He's, he's passed away now. God rest his wonderful soul. And I walked up to him, this little black kid from Hollis, Queens, New York City. And I walked up to this guy, and I said, sir, I'm from the, I'm Stephen A. Smith from the Winston Salem Journal. I, I I'm an aspiring sports writer. I have never covered soccer in my life, but they've sent me on this assignment. And if I don't do it right, my chances of becoming a sports writer ain't gonna look too good. Could you help me? <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, How much time do you have? I said, till this Saturday. And he called the entire team over. He had just met me like three minutes ago. He called the entire team over. And he said to the team, you are to give him complete access to all of you for the remainder of this week. You understand me? And they all looked and they nodded, yes, sir. He said, Stephen, you will stand by me. And the coach, along with the players, spent that entire week teaching me the game of soccer. I ended up writing a good piece. I went back, wrote it, two-page pullout piece again before that big piece for the New York Daily News. And I wrote that piece. And the next day, 
the editor, sports editor, Terry Overly called me into the Winston-Salem Journal. He said, congratulations, you're the new beat writer for Wake Forest Soccer. And that is how my career started while I was a student at Winston-Salem State. That is an amazing story. Then you go to the Greensboro News, if I got this right, the New York yep. Daily News, Philly Inquirer. You yep. said $400 a week felt like a ton, but I always like to start because I think it's important, and I don't know if you find this to be the case too. Mm-hmm. In this Instagram era, everybody right. thinks that they should have everything almost instantaneously, this microwave right. generation. You don't get paid very much in media, no matter where you start. It's really low. Right. Can you run us through your career, your salaries at those newspapers and how many hours you were working and what was required of you to be able to make it? Probably, I bet, to an area where you could even afford rent in a place you'd want to live, right? Because I think this is super important for anybody going into media. I started off at the Greensboro News and Record after graduating and doing my internships at the Winston-Salem Journal. Uh, because that uh, that job that was paying me $400 a week, Clay, that ultimately became, I was able to parlay that into an internship so I would get the credit hours necessary in order to graduate. And I also did an internship at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for six months. Um, thereafter, the Greensboro News and Record came hiring me as a, as a sports clerk for its uh, editorial assistant, to be exact, for its High Point Bureau which was down the block from Archdale, North Carolina, where I was living in an apartment for $300 a month. And so I went there and I was doing calendar items, school lunch menus, agate stuff and all of this, right? And in order for me to write articles for the Greensboro News and Record newspaper, I had to do it in my off time. So I would work from 8.30 to six o'clock. And then I would travel to the schools where they were playing football because football, high school football is big in that Piedmont Triad area, Greensboro, Burlington, yep. you know, Winston-Salem, all of these places. And I would work from during football season from like 7 p.m. until close to midnight and during the basketball season sometimes as well. And I didn't get paid for it. The only thing they would pay for was my gas. That was it. Gas and everything else was on me. And so... I was making $15,300 a month and I was living off of tuna fish and Kool-Aid. Prior to that, before I got that job, I did a summer job where I would work at the Salvation Army Boys and Girls Club during the day from 7.30 to four counseling kids. I was a counselor for kids, underage kids. And then from 4.30 to 9.30, I would load and unload 18-wheeler trucks for roadway. You know, so... That was like the rival for UPS or whatever it was. And so all of that led up to it. And then after I went there from Greensboro, um, I ultimately transitioned to the New York Daily News. And this is where it was a game changer for me. Their high school sports department was defunct for a few months. They had a strike. They disbanded the department in like April of that year, whatever, and then came back in um, August of 1993. Well, they didn't want to lose me because I was freelancing for them for a few months. And when I was freelancing for them, I was getting like $1,000 per article, per freelance article. My attitude was, oh my goodness, I do 12, 10 to 15 of these. I'll make just as much as I was making in Greensboro. So I was excited about that. Yeah, right. And then I got an offer from the Met Pro Internship Program, which is a collaboration of New York Newsday and the LA Times at the time, where they would take candidates and they would like 
you know, get like two, 3,000 applicants and take the final 24. And I was one of those trying to final 24. Well, when they knew I was about to go to that program, the New York Daily News turned around and offered me a job as a high school sports reporter. And they offered me $53,500. Remember, I was just making 15. So this is like heaven. Yep. You know, it's like, oh my goodness, not only is the money, but I'm back in my hometown, New York, instead of being a native New Yorker stuck in Archdale, North Carolina. So it was like the, the, the heavens opened up. So I was happy about that. Then I did that big two-page end zone piece that I told you about earlier. And then the, the newspapers came calling and the Philadelphia Inquirer came calling for me. When they came calling for me, they gave me 60000 a year, which ultimately went to seventy five which ultimately went to 125, which ultimately went to 200 and then 225 before ESPN can call. All right. So at what point along that pathway did you think, okay, I finally made it? Was there a dollar figure in your mind? I, I always like to ask this because I grew up public school kid. I always mm-hmm. looked at the price of everything on the menu And I only think in like the last seven or eight years where I've been like, I can go into a restaurant and mind you, I'm not going into, you know, the the, the highest in restaurant on the planet, but where I can go in and I see something on a menu and I'm like, I'll order whatever I want. Right. Was there a moment in time where you felt like, okay, you started at $400 a week, 15, three at the Greensboro news. Was there a moment along that pathway where you thought, Hey, I've made it. Now I'm now I've, there, I, I'm I'm in a success level where I feel like I can live uh, in a way that maybe uh, maybe I didn't anticipate growing up. The brief moment was when I got the salary from the New York Daily News, and then I went yeah. looking. I thought I made it at that moment of fifty three thousand, and then I went looking for my own apartment. I needed my mama to co-sign, and so <laughs> when my mama needed yeah. to co-sign for me. And I told, and they asked me my salary and I gave them my salary. That was when I found out my mother had never made $53,000 a year in her, in her life as a registered nurse. And so when I looked at it from that perspective, I thought for a second that I made it until my first monthly bill came. And when I saw how much was being taken away in taxes, combined with what I had to pay in New York rent, I realized Ain't no such thing as making. I ain't make it yet. I, I didn't make it yet. And that the thing about it is that it, it sort of like hurt me from the standpoint that throughout my life, you know, this is why even though I'm a registered independent, so many people think I'm a staunch Republican because ever since then, I paid attention to my money. It's like, well, this, 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 this is a lot of this state income tax here in New York and California. This is for the birds. I can't deal with it. All of a sudden you go to Tennessee, you go to Delaware, you go to Nevada, you go, I mean, Texas, Florida. I know the states that there's no state income tax. I got zero, I got zero state income, income tax where I'm talking to you from Tennessee right now. A lot of people in Florida, Florida's a pretty good place. Zero state income tax. Texas ain't bad. Zero state income tax. It's a big deal to me. I'm not extreme left but I'm relatively socially moderate to liberal, but I am very conservative monetarily, fiscally. I mean, you want to turn me off to talk to me about that. I, I don't get, you know, they can bring up a whole bunch of, they bring up race. They bring up this, man, with my money. You know what I'm saying? There's problems everywhere, but damn it. The biggest problem is when you are earning this money and you don't see it because 
the state income tax and, and federal income tax and FICA and other means. Everywhere you turn, they're taking your damn money. That's when I lose it. I'm like this, man, I, I, I can't deal with this much longer. And so I've always been like that. And then, you know, it's been problematic because during my negotiations, whether it's me directly in the newspaper industry or through an agent and a representative and television or whatever, I'm very big on, excuse me, um, Y'all got me here in the state of New York. You know, why don't y'all have me based out of Connecticut? I mean, the, the, the ESPN is based out of Connecticut. How come I'm not hearing that? Because, I mean, they taking my money here in New York. They taking my money here in California. I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, can we talk about loan out status? Can we talk about a 1099 instead of a W-2? You know, I'm not getting what I want, but I'm fighting and fighting and fighting throughout the years because I remembered years ago when I made that 53.5 and they were taking most of my money and all of them damn taxes in New York. It was driving me crazy. I, I tell you, the first time I ever went out to Fox Sports in 2013 right. when they launched FS1 was to do their college football show. I got right. my paycheck and I saw what they took to appear in Los Angeles because oh. I would get on a plane, fly out there. And I would be like, are you kidding me? Like, I, I, I legitimately could not believe, because I got a zero state income tax here, right. 15, 16% coming out just for me getting on an airplane and traveling out there. That's and right. that's why when we started right. doing the sports gambling show, I did it from here. Uh, and, yeah. and I was like, I, you know, put a camera in my house. Like, I, I'll come out to LA occasionally, but I don't want right. to get murdered on the tax rate like it's happening. Exactly. All right, so, exactly. so you're right. what did that feel like? You, you were similar to me the first, so when I finished practicing law, First job I got after practicing law is actually, I think a lot of your family is from the U.S. Virgin Islands. So I practiced yes. in the U.S. Virgin Islands. My very first paycheck as a lawyer, uh, when I was in the summer doing my internship, was more mm -hmm. than my dad or mom ever made uh, in their entire career. So wow. on some level, when you get that and you recognize how difficult it is for you to live as a single guy in the New York City area, you're a ch you got uh, five brothers and sisters. If I if I did the research correctly, well, and your the mom is a nurse. Did you look? Brother, yes. Did you look at your mom and be like, even more respect than you had beforehand that she raised an entire family off of less yeah. money than you were making and struggling yeah. to live on your own? Absolutely, no question about it. And you just you just had a great great appreciation for it. And you know, we spent a, it was minimal, but we spent a short time on welfare. Um, obviously, we struggled tremendously. Uh, we knew how to do without. We knew how to survive. But we certainly knew that we were poor. It wasn't one of those things where people say, yeah, you know, you had so much love in the house and you don't know that you're poor. BS. No, we knew we were poor. No question about it, that we were deprived uh, of a lot of things because of our circumstances. But your respect and admiration uh, for her just elevated amongst all of us because in order to be able to take care of us, there had to be such an incomparable level of selflessness where it was about us and it wasn't about her. You know, she's the reason that I always came up with a, a slogan when it came to me and my two daughters. And that is if they're hungry, it's because I'm starving. You know, I'm not comfortable unless they're comfortable. I don't eat unless I know they're eating. I'm not living um, it comfortably unless I know they're okay. They are first. And so I got that from mom because mom was that way. And she mandated that her children be that way as well. And certainly my four older sisters are definitely that way. And it's because of her. And I think you just, I read that you just lost your mom and that that was one of the most difficult. 
2017. And I read that for a couple of years, it was absolutely devastating for you. I know we're coming up on the holiday season, but are the holidays more difficult for you without her? Uh, What would you say to everybody out there? I mean, and there's people dealing with very many losses out there. Always got to keep that in your mind. Um, Did it change the way you work? Did it change the way that you did your jobs and also interacted with people on a daily basis, that loss? I will tell you that the only reason I celebrate the holidays is because of my daughters and my family, the rest of my family, my sisters. I have no desire to celebrate the holidays. The holidays are an incredibly miserable time for me for two reasons. Number one, because she's gone. And number two, you're constantly seeing those who have their loved ones talking about their loved ones and how happy they are and whatever. Um, One of the most difficult things of, of all the things that I've done in my career Um, I will tell you that the most difficult thing that I do on ESPN is uh, when I have to work on Mother's Day. It is, or Mother's Day week. It is the most miserable, miserable time. Um, All the stuff about cancer research and stuff like that, that, that definitely is second on the list because that's where she passed away from. So it's a constant perpetual reminder. And it just takes me to a very, very dark place where I just don't want to be around anybody. I don't want to be alone. It's not as bad as it was from 2017 to 2019, to be honest with you. Um, Therapy helped with that. I know a lot of us, particularly as black men, don't necessarily like to admit that, but it's true. I was in therapy for a while after losing my mother because it is the worst feeling that I've ever had in my life. I've never known that level of misery. I've never known that level of, 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 of emotional non-control uh, for lack of better words there. I just, I would sit on the air, Travis, at times and I just have to openly confess this. There were times and it wouldn't last, it wouldn't last but a few seconds or whatever, but there's literally times where I'm sitting across from someone and I didn't hear them and I didn't see them. It was dark and all I saw was my mom's casket being lowered into the ground. And it was just the worst feeling in the world. And that's when I knew um, that I had to go to therapy because it was like, you know, I'm saying things. I'm a bit sharp with my tongue. I'm not having the level of compassion that I know that I feel in my heart. Um, There's so many different things that come with it. I know I'm better than that. But I just, I didn't have control because I was emotionally in turmoil. And I just, you know, and I, I think I would be honest with you. It was also the biggest time where I regretted not ever being married. Because you see, when you're married, you know, that's basically handing mama, handing the baton to that lady that you found and it's forever. And so what happens is, is that as a man, when you have as close of a relationship with your mother as I have, the belief is, you know what, here's this person that loves me conditionally, unconditionally and you know, it, it's, 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 it's a love that I can depend upon and rely upon for the rest of my life. And you never, ever think about what if it's not there anymore. And what happened is, is that when she passed away and that the day of her funeral arrived and it was over and we went to the cemetery, it was the first time in my life that I literally said, oh, my God, I don't have a woman that I know for beyond a shadow of a doubt loves me unconditionally anymore. And it was a misery that just overwhelmed me. And I truly believe that my daughter's existence 
is what saved me because I knew that I had to be here for them. But it was just a miserable abyss that I was sitting in for a long, long time. And I had to go on television, national television every day and hide it because I had a job to do. I had to get it done. And I couldn't bring my misery to the audience. But sometimes I was more effective than others in that way. Did it being sports make it somewhat tougher? And, and I ask that because, and I'm sure you are, are aware, and I'm sure it's been times in your life, a lot of people look to sports to take them away from the serious things in their life, right? You come mm-hmm. home at the end of the day, you pop a beer, you put your feet up, and you watch to see what's going to happen in whatever game is going on. But when you're working in sports, it's almost like you don't have, and, and it's going to sound a little bit strange, but you don't necessarily have that same escape uh, because it right. is a job. Did that mm-hmm. sometimes conflict in that, I imagine for you, sports has been something that you've enjoyed, like most of the people who are watching or listening mm-hmm. to this right now, for mm-hmm. much of your life. And so when your job is connected, you can't even really escape it. Does that make sense? And so yeah, it does, I'm curious but I, that's how that how impacted felt, your grief. That, yeah. That's not how I felt for the most part. I only felt that day. I only felt that way when I returned to the NBA Finals in Cleveland. I believe it was game. I can't remember if it was game three or four, but I came there uh, in Cleveland when they were playing Golden State. Um, and that was the day after I buried my, we buried my mother because my sisters after, you know, the repast and everything transpired, they said, okay, so when are you going back to work? And I'm like, what do you mean going back to work? They're like, what are you talking about? There's NBA Finals going on. What will mommy say? And we all knew what we would, she would say, finish the job. My mother was very, very big on that. West Indian woman born and raised in St. Thomas, Virgin Islands. She was about that work, Clay. Get the work done first. My mother, I could hear her in my voice, in, in my head that day. Get the job done. You got all summer to mourn me. Literally, I could hear her saying that because that's exactly something that she would have said. And so my sister said, it's time to get back to work. And then I, I watched it uh, the day of uh, that she had passed away. And it was game one. And we were supposed to be doing the show first take from Lake Chalet, uh, Lake Chalet, uh, I think it's Chalet. I think that's how it's pronounced in Oakland, California. And they found out that I wasn't going to be there because my mom passed away. And damn near 75% of the audience disappeared. And I just said, my sisters are right. I got a job to finish. And we were doing a special afternoon special for the first take in Cleveland that afternoon. And I showed up and I showed up that afternoon a week later and was ready to go. And um, it was just, I just had to do it because I knew that's what she would have mandated. And I did exactly what she would have wanted me to do. I went there, um, I did my job and then I spent the rest of the summer and practically the next two years really, really mourning her. But the only day that was um, where it was hard on the job, on the court, was when I went to the court for the first time, uh, Jesse Jackson showed up one minute to give me a hug and Dr. Michael Eric Dyson showed up another time, Sage Steele, who used to work for ESPN, Christopher Broussard was there, um, along with uh, uh, Paul Pierce and Chauncey Billups came in to give me a hug. And, and then uh, standing outside the door was Kevin Durant's mom. Um, and she just gave me a big hug and said, we love you. We, you know, the NBA moms are here for you. Um, just wanted you to know that. So that meant the world to me because I almost broke down crying on the court because I was still, you know, really going through it from having lost my mom. Do you think that's why you haven't gotten married? Because your mom 
occupies such an incredible part of your life that you haven't found someone who can match up with her in your mind? No, I don't think that's it. Um, I think that, um, well, first of all, let me say this. What I'm about to say, um, I'm not casting blame because ultimately it's my responsibility. Um, I'm a father. I'm a father out of wedlock. That is the one thing that my mother was not proud of me about. She did not raise me to have children out of wedlock and stuff, but I did that. Um, and it happened to transpire at the time that I was, you know, unemployed for crying out loud on the verge of being unemployed. And I just did, I didn't, I didn't handle my business correctly. So that's on me. Uh, but at the end of the day, I would tell you in terms of marriage, I was engaged twice. Um, my mother is a lot to live up to, but it's not so much that you can say in a roundabout way, Clay, it's her. But for me, in this day and age, we see so many women and a lot of issues pertaining to women coming to the forefront. And it's emboldened women in a way that has them being incredibly independent, strong, yet at the same time, highly intolerable. And they're not wrong for being that way. What I'm saying is, is that my dad, um, I love him, I always will, but he was not a good man. He was not a good father. And I saw a person who performed a dereliction of duty as a father, did not take care of his family, put entirely too much on the shoulders of my mother. And I saw this woman stay with him anyway for 60 years. Now, I, she passed away when I was 49, so obviously I didn't see it the whole time, but she was with him for 60 years, never left. And so when I think about my mom and how wonderful she was, how tolerant she was, how strong she was, and how committed she was to her family, it's kind of hard growing up seeing all of that and then dealing with women who make you feel like you're expendable, we can take you or leave you. I'm the kind of person you even breathe in my direction that you could take me or leave me, I'm leaving. That's how I am. And that's hard uh, for a lot of people to tolerate, but that's just the truth about me. I'm very successful. Um, any woman that's in my life, I treat like a queen. Uh, but the second she gives me the impression, she even utters words in my direction and gives me the impression that she can take me or leave me, that I'm this expendable part, she can go find somebody else because I damn sure will. That's my attitude. That's how I am. Um, that's not to say I'm right. My pastor has spoken to me about it on many occasions. Uh, it's something that I need to improve upon, no doubt, because my tolerance level is lower because my attitude is if that man can have a woman as wonderful as my mother for all of those years, I should be able to get at least somebody half that quality. That's just the way that I've thought. And that's the way that's the reason I've been single. My mother has held it against me until the day I died. But it was true. It was absolutely true. What's more likely the Knicks win a championship or you get married? Me getting married. Okay. I think the Knicks are that's that's got to be Knicks tough are, as a lifelong I, I, Knicks fan. It, 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 well, you know what? I, I mean, listen, I'm getting older and, and you know what? I, I don't, I'm not scared to be alone. I'm, I've been blessed to be very successful. I definitely have a woman in my life. I'm, I'm good. Life is cool. But in the same breath, um, you know, I, I, I kind of love, it, it's kind of nice having somebody. I mean, you, I used to like being alone. Now, I don't mind being in the company of somebody else and imagining forever with somebody else. It actually is kind of cool right now. 
Okay, you. Uh, we've talked about a lot of your career. I believe you're 56 years old right now. Yes, I am. I always yes. like to ask, uh, what's something you know now that would have saved you an awful lot of trouble if you had known it in your 20s or 30s? Mm. I would say that <clears throat> more people want you to succeed than you realize. What I try to tell folks, particularly in white America, is that you have to be a bit forgiving, considering our nation's history, considering the plight of black people and some of the things that we've been through, the suspicious nature, the high level of skepticism, the chip on our shoulders, proverbially speaking, from time to time, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't come from nowhere. It doesn't come out of thin air. But in the same breath, as black folks, we have to understand that doesn't make us right either. You know, there's a reason for thinking the way that a lot of us think. I can't speak for everybody, of course not. There's a reason for thinking the way that we think, but it doesn't always make us right. You know, growing up in the streets of Hollis, Queens, New York City, I wasn't exposed to a bunch of white folks. But here's the beauty of it. Thank the good Lord, um, my grandmother was white. So I, I didn't walk around thinking that because I'm black, somebody's white they're automatically against me because by the way sorry sorry to cut you off how did how did your your grandmother was white how did that relationship come to pass oh she loved her her, her baby boy she called me her baby boy i was steven she was born and raised in st thomas as well and she loved okay. the ground that i walked on and she um you know my mother i'll never say anybody loved me more than my mother but my grandmother no one showed me more love than my grandma. But I mean, that had to be, but for her to be in an interracial relationship, that had to be what? Like the 1930s, the 1940s? Yes. That had to be virtually yes. unheard yes. of. Then even in yes. the Caribbean, that would have been rare at the time. Without right? question. And she did it anyway and took a lot of vitriol and heat because of it. And she, and this is why a lot of white folks can't argue with me about this. She's the one that taught me what racism was. My mother and my father never talked about racism, ever. They didn't want it as a they didn't want it as a crutch. They didn't want it as an excuse. They didn't deny that it existed, but they were like, okay, so what you gonna do to get around it? What you gonna do to overcome those obstacles, those battles, or whatever? Because everybody ain't gonna like you. And oh, by the way, sometimes people who are white that don't like you, it ain't because you're black. It's because they don't like you. You understand what I'm saying? So you can't always point to race yeah. and stuff like that. Sometimes it's applicable, sometimes it's not. And you have to deduce which one is which to the best of your ability. But what you're not going to be allowed to have in this house is that as an excuse for curtailing your ability to succeed. We're not letting that happen. My grandmother, on the other hand, would say, as a white person, Here's what racism really, really looks like. This is what you need to see. This is what you need to know. This is how you can tell the difference, okay? And understanding that, I was able to walk out there, and she taught me this, very much, uh, which was very, very big. Never judge the book by its cover. Don't assume this person feels this way about you just because they look differently than you. They share a different ideology. They come from a different background or whatever. Give them a chance. It's not the end of the world to give somebody a chance. And she taught me that, and that has helped me go a long way because when I communicate with people who look different than me, who come from different cultural and ethnic backgrounds and things of that nature, they don't see a guy that wears this on his sleeve where automatically I'm against you because I think you're against me. They, I've never had that issue. You mentioned earlier that from a financial perspective, you're very conservative. You tend to be a little bit socially liberal. I'm curious, bigger picture, 
Do you mm-hmm. think that America would be better off if Democrats and Republicans had to equally compete for the black vote instead of many black voters automatically aligning with the Democrat Party, sometimes, arguably, and I think accurately, meaning that black issues get taken for granted by the Democrat Party because they feel like they've already got that support. Would it be better to have a competition for the black vote in your mind? Absolutely. I think it would be better for society as a whole. Um, I've always stated that I've given speeches, your alma mater, one of your alma maters, because I know you got a law degree and stuff like that. Um, but Vanderbilt <laughs> University, I spoke, I spoke at Vanderbilt yeah. University and, um, you know, when I spoke there, that was one of the places that I've spoken at, but I've spoken to many places throughout the country. And one of the lines uh, that I've used is that I wish for one election, every black person votes Republican. They were like, what? And I was like, yes, I said, because Anything that you buy, you have to see, guess what? Convince me, you know, flatter me. You want to buy a new car? Show me what you got. You want a new house? Show me what you got. You want a condo? Show me what you got. You want some clothes? Show me what you got. Why are we being transparent in our support? Now, times have changed, obviously, uh, because of uh, of Trump or what have you. And that's not a subject that I'm running from with you or anybody else, by the way, because I have different reasons of feeling the way that I feel. But nevertheless, the point that I'm making is, is that prior to him, I was always big on, look, flatter me. Don't assume I'm voting. Now, granted, most of the time I voted Democrat. As a matter of fact, I, the only Republican I ever voted for was Chris Christie because I couldn't stand Corzine in New Jersey. But as I reflected on elections over the years, there are times that I wish I would have voted for a Republican because I'm not, I don't get caught up in all of that. I believe in free market capitalism. I believe in national security. I don't believe in these high taxes that you see in the state of New York and, and, and California. I do think that the, the, the wealth needs to be spread out, but I do believe in free market capitalism. I absolutely do that. I'm not ashamed of that by any stretch of the imagination. You got a lot of people here thinking capitalism is evil. And my attitude is, well, then why don't you go somewhere else? And I don't mean leave the country and you shouldn't be an American citizen or whatever the case may be. What I'm saying is this is our society is considered one of the best on the planet. We have our flaws. We have our mistakes. We're not perfect. I get all of that. But based on what I see elsewhere in this world, I can't imagine a system that I would rather be under, at least before the last six or seven years or so where I think chaos has just reigned. That's just how I feel about it, and I don't apologize for it to anybody. What do you like about Chris Christie? Because well, I think me, you I sent out that, a tweet saying you'd like right. to see him on the on the debate stage. We got the debate right. coming in a couple of days down in Tuscaloosa, mm-hmm. Alabama. He'll be there. He's been right. on Clay and Buck a bunch. I like him. Yep. He's a huge sports fan. I'm sure that you guys yes. can connect on sports, but we're friends from that. Know him yes. Decently at this point. Yeah. Right. So what, yeah, what do yeah. you it's, like it's, it's, about it's more him personal. as a politician? It's more, it's more personal than anything else, Clay, um, from the standpoint that I've gotten to know him personally. Um, I like him a great deal. I think that he's smart. Obviously he's accomplished. Um, I think that he is about national security. I thought that he did a relatively decent job. If it wasn't for the whole kind of scandal with George Washington Bridge and you know, all Bridgegate and stuff like that, I thought that he, yeah. you know, up until that moment, he was incredibly popular. But it's really just about, to me, I'm weird in the sense that I don't necessarily have to agree with all of your policies. I have to trust that your soul is in the right place, that you're about doing what's in the best interest of the country, not just yourself. 
That's big to me, okay? It's not about changing the country ideologically or having that dramatic shift or anything like that. It's about making sure that we do the kind of things that serve to appease the whole to the best of your ability, willing to find some level of compromise. We know that in the state of New Jersey, the Democrats was running the House and the Senate locally, you know, statewide. But somehow, some way, he was able to get some things done in the state of New Jersey. So I think about things along those lines, and I say, okay, this is a person that has the ability to work across the aisle and try to get things done. And I think somebody like that is somebody that I believe is worth supporting. But it's really about me knowing him a bit personally compared to other guys. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. I'm Clay Travis, and I'll kick the show is going to keep right on rolling. Trump and Biden look like they're going to be the Democrat and Republican nominees in 2024. I know there'll be third parties. Would you vote Biden? Would you vote Trump? Would you vote third party? Or are you so frustrated you just throw up your hands, which unfortunately I think a lot of people are going to be, and just wouldn't even bother to show up because you don't think it's going to matter? As a black man, I would never throw away my vote. People died for to, to fight for the rights for us to vote. I would never... Uh, disrespect my descendants by doing something like that. You know, people made tremendous sacrifices with their lives for us to have the right to vote. And I'm definitely going to, you know, Voting Rights Act kicks in in 1965. I mean, hell, this 1965 for crying out loud. We're going to do all of that. Then you're not going to vote. I think that's shameful. And I think that's irresponsible. And I think that it's important to recognize that the biggest conduit, the biggest conduit for change is your vote. That's number one. Having said all of that, Here's my answer to your question about a third party as opposed to Trump or Biden. I would tell you that I would vote third party in a heartbeat if I thought it could it could win an election. I don't want to throw away my vote. okay? but I will tell you, I'm not enamored with either candidate. Um, I'm not as down on all of Trump's policies as people are. Um, there are some good things he's done. I'm from an HBCU. I know that he did things for HBCUs. I know that the economy was flourishing. We can act like we don't know that, but damn it, it's true. It was flourishing under his stewardship for some time. I know COVID ended up being a disaster. Now we're finding out things, something new every day about uh, Dr. Fauci or anybody else. I don't know all of the details of this stuff, but you just read the news and you see what's going on. You listen to people like yourself and I don't give a damn what people say about Clay Travis or anybody else. Don't tell me who you like. Are they telling the truth? Are they telling the truth, damn it? If you're telling the truth, then damn it, I like you. I mean, I just got to take it. And so that's just the way that it is. But when I look at Trump, here's where I think that all of his supporters should take something into consideration. I think that he's so divisive that he could potentially cause civil war in this country. That's my concern about him. What I would ask the Republicans is this. Somebody like DeSantis would vote right along how he'd vote. They try to implement policies just like he's implementing it. Nikki Haley as well. I mean, what are you talking about? They would do the things that Trump does. They would just do it with considerably more decorum and, dare I say, decency as opposed to being so divisive where you ultimately cause civil war in this country. On the other hand, there's Biden. And there are a lot of people with the Democratic Party that I won't give their names, but they've made sure to contact me because they didn't like the fact that I said this, Clay. We need a new president. The man is going to be 82 years of age in the year 2024. There's no way around it. We need to stop. Now, 
you know, I would get on my man Sean Hannity a lot. Stop causing trouble. You're just trying to create a narrative. And <laughs> here's what you do. You're troublemaking stuff. You're going to get Clay on your show. You're going to get everybody else on your show starting this nonsense. You watch, Sean, by you the way, for stop. people who don't know. For people who don't know, you watch Fox News. I mean, you enjoy Sean Absolutely. Hannity's show. You'll I watch all of them. Jesse Waters. Like, I mean, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I didn't like, listen, I'm a fan of Jesse Waters. I just didn't like what he did with the whole DeSantis thing with slavery. I All I said about him was this. Why even defend that? Why even bring that up? Why even try to investigate, oh, the positive benefits to slavery? Stop that. Let that go. You should have told the census to shut the hell up. And that's the only issue that I've ever had with Jesse Waters. But I respect the hell out of him and the show that he does. Um, and, and, and I'm fond of the work that he does. Sean Hannity and I, people, black folks just need to get over it. We go back 20 years, damn near 20 years. Sean Hannity and I are going to be cool. And that's just the way it's going to be. I'm not apologizing for that to anybody. The same goes to Mark Levin. They know I don't agree with all of their politics. But what you're not going to do is use is come to me as a black man and tell me that I'm supposed to be speaking against them as if there's some racist ass people or something like that, just because you don't agree with them ideology. I don't agree with them ideology, ideologically rather. They know that. But I know, A, they know what they're talking about. Two, they make salient points. And I think two, those two guys are both decent dudes. And that's just the way that so I what, feel about them. And I'm not changing. No, they're good dudes. I agree with that. Well, so what grade? Joe Biden, you said 82. I think 70, by the way, 75% of people, regardless of mm -hmm. politics, agree that Joe Biden is too old and seems mentally and physically overwhelmed. So only 25% right. of people would even disagree with that statement that I made. 75%, right. it's hard to get 75% of people to agree on well, anything. So what should happen for the Democrats? Like, should they pick somebody else? Uh, what, I, think, I mean, if Biden's too old, and I agree with you. What should happen? Right. Uh, first of all, let me say this. I, I know there's a lot of people, if you're a liberal, there's a lot of people that agree with what Biden has done. They look at the economy. They don't think it's that bad. They look at inflation issues. They don't think it's that bad. They don't think we're in a recession or anything like that. These are the kind of things that they say, obviously, um, you know, getting folks out of jail for nonviolent crimes. They give them credit for that. There's a litany of things. My issue is this. It's statesmanship. So definitely I get where they're coming from. But you got to show the ability not just to be competent and cogent, alert and vibrant. Okay, these things come into play. But the ability to show, to display, there's no reason to doubt that you'll be this way for the next four years. And you cannot tell me that that's what he's showing us. It's just a fact. And nobody wants me to say it. I can't even tell you, especially folks in the black, blue, 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 what the hell? You don't know what you're talking about. Why would you say this? Blah, 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 blah. I said, because he's losing. It's one thing if he's winning, because I do think he would be less harmful than Trump in terms of just keeping us whole as a society per se. I'm not talking policy, Clay. I'm not talking policy because it depends on what your what your taste is or whatever. You know, me, I could go both ways because I'm going to have more money in my pocket with Trump. I'm going to have more money in my pocket with yep. Trump, okay? But of course, there's some other things that may not work to my advantage, and I get all of that. But when I'm thinking about Biden, you have to show that ability. You haven't been. There has been flagrant slippage. And in my perfect world, it would be nice if Kamala Harris showed up and had more of an impact. That has not been the case. Now, here's where I'm going. I am in no way saying that me myself supports this move. But what makes sense, if you are a flaming liberal, what makes sense is that Biden bows out and Gavin Newsom 
takes the mantle and runs for the presidency against whoever the Republican nominee is. It presumably is Trump, but 91 counts against you, you know, you know, four different charges, 91 counts. What if he gets convicted? What will happen then? Nikki Haley gaining some momentum, Ron DeSantis gaining some momentum, Christie still alive. I understand it's a big deal. I get where you're coming from with all of that. But what I would tell you is at the end of the day, this is what it comes down to. In the end, it would be to me, Trump versus Gavin Newsom. Um, a couple more questions for you. I appreciate it. This has been so much fun, by the way. Are you optimistic or pessimistic on race relations? I'm pessimistic. I'm pessimistic because Why? it's not, on one hand, I hold the politicians accountable because it's very, very different. It's very, very, it's very difficult to hold folks to a standard in our nation that our leaders won't comply with. We have politicians on Capitol Hill calling each other out their names, acting like a bunch of hooligans, a bunch of belligerent children. It's embarrassing. And they should be ashamed of themselves. They really, really should. Because I think that they've contributed to the disintegration of our society morally, not just by how they've conducted themselves, but how they've chosen to conduct themselves openly. I think Trump is guilty of that. I think folks with the whole McCarthy thing, when he was trying to become the Speaker of the House, you saw how folks were acting. You saw how they were acting when they pushed him out. You see some of the things Republicans and Democrats are like, how they speak about one another. No honor, no decorum, no decency whatsoever. You know, it, there, there's been people on the left that's, that, that's calling Republicans all kinds of names, but then you want to do business with them and expect us to believe that y'all could do business with one another. I think that's an utter disgrace, but I also think that society has gravitated towards that. And I think that you have an abundance of people out there who were looking for an excuse to get away or to find a way to be able to get away with acting the way that they always wanted to act to begin with. Do I think, for example, Clay, as I'm sitting here with you now, that Donald Trump and, and you know, kind of provoked and egged on dudes or folks that 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 you know showed up on, on Capitol Hill? Do I believe it was an insurrection? Sure. But I also think, and I've said this publicly, those were grown ass people. Now he gave a speech. And he talked about walking over there peacefully, but in the same breath, you know, peace wasn't on his mind and you could you can engage in whatever you want. But at the end of the day, they're responsible for their actions. To me, not necessarily him. That's my personal opinion. But in the same breath, my God, what if elected officials had gotten killed? Five police officers did die. I'm just thinking along those lines. How are we okay with that? And so then when we look at a society and we say we are okay with that, there's a lot of us that are okay with that. We see a lot of lawlessness going on throughout this country. You know why? Because that's how they want it to be to begin with. They were just looking for an excuse. And I don't see how it gets better if our leaders don't get better. So in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, I want to see if you agree or disagree with this thesis. It seemed okay. like most of what we did was, say, white, black, Asian, and Hispanic. We may look different, but we actually are far more uh, in common, even though our identities may appear different. In other okay. words, uh, that seemed to be the culture that existed. And, and I was very optimistic that people were getting along better. And I don't mm -hmm. know exactly when that shifted. 
But it seems to me that the rise of what I call identity politics, and I know we talked about this last Mm -hmm. time uh, on Mm -hmm. your show, which is to me that your identity defines what you believe, i.e. you're Mm -hmm. a black man, so it's expected that you're going to believe X, Y, and Z. I'm a white guy in the South, so I should believe X, Y, and Z, when the reality is both of us and everybody out there listening to us too is far more complicated and interesting than whatever your physical identity might be. And that it is therefore this idea that we're all primarily defined by the things we don't control, by Mm -hmm. the choices we don't make, as opposed to, as you said, I mean, I think everybody who's listened to us talk over the course of this show is going to have a different opinion of you than they had before. I think a more Mm -hmm. favorable one, as typically happens when a conversation takes place. So Mm -hmm. I think we have to break identity politics and stop looking at someone primarily as their race or their gender or their sexuality as a defining characteristic. And I think that's that's what has led us apart. That's my thesis. that's That's one way to look at it. Let me tell you where I feel differently. As a black man, my experiences are different than you in this country. One of the things that I'm very popular for saying to white America is, if I call somebody a racist bastard or a no good bastard with, 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 with prejudice sifting through their soul or whatever, if that's not you, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those people who are that way, not white people. I'm talking about those people, those individuals, those characteristics that I highlighted. What you have is a situation where you can look at identity politics in a slightly different way than me. You just articulated where you're coming from. You know what I would also call identity politics, Clay? Somebody that automatically assumes they have to jump on a bandwagon and support the person that you just excor- that I just excoriated, classifying them the way that they did, as if I'm talking about them when I wasn't. If it doesn't identify with you and you have nothing to do with such a, a, a characterization, why are you being defensive? I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about those people who conduct themselves that way. Take this into account, Clay. During the civil rights era, there were black folks fighting and marching and putting their lives on the line for civil rights. I recall seeing white people out there fighting with them. There were some white people out there fighting with them, putting their lives on the line, fighting for civil rights for black people. Everybody that's white ain't evil. Everybody that's black ain't good. Okay, so we got to understand that and take it to that point. But here's where I would really differ from you. You talked about identity politics. I got something 10 times more damaging. Woke culture. It ain't popular to say it's woke culture. Here's why woke culture is is, is, is worse. Because no matter what your identity is or what my identity is, we can live in our separate worlds or we could choose to come together. Woke gets you fired. If you ain't woke enough. If you don't agree with what the woke culture says, it wants you to agree with. And so what happens is somebody like me, Clay Travis might say 10 things I disagree with, but nine of them I have no problem with. Now, if I have a problem with something, I'll say so. But the other nine things you said, I'm like, wait a minute. He might feel differently than me, but it's perfectly within his right to say that is perfectly within his right to feel that way. He said absolutely nothing wrong. Why are you trying to get him fired? And then here's where it comes. I'm looking at Clay on the right, but I see Bill Maher on the left. I was at Club Random in in Hollywood talking to uh, Bill Maher on on his podcast for two hours, okay? His politics don't identify with Clay, but listening to the both of them, I don't see that big of a difference in terms of their belief 
in freedom of speech, freedom of expression, having the right to say what you feel as long as it comes from a cogent and substantive place. There's no problem with it. Who said we have to disagree? If Clay Travis invited me on this show and we talked politics for two hours, I'm quite sure we would disagree on a few things. You know what you wouldn't get from me? Offensiveness. I wouldn't be offended by what you're thinking. I told you I'm cool with Sean Hannity. I told you I'm cool with Mark Levin. I can assure you they both know 65 to 75% of the time I think they're off their rocker. But you know something? They know what they're talking about. They're firm with what they believe. And at their core, they're decent human beings. And I'm good with that. They get a little wild sometimes, especially Mark Levin, because he's such he's so dogged about the Constitution and everything. Don't get me started with him. But I respect the hell out of them. That What's wrong with it? We got to grow up as a society and accept the fact that differences are OK as long as we're wishing the best for our fellow men and women. And we're not using every little excuse that we can to end somebody's career. Because I've made mistakes. You've made mistakes. We all have. But my God, should we lose our careers for it? I don't agree. I don't agree with that at all. And I think woke culture has instigated that kind of thinking. And that's why when you've spoken about woke culture, I've sat up there and said to people, he's right. He's right. I just think the idea of firing anybody because you don't like their opinion, oftentimes on a show that is based on opinions, like Whoopi right. Goldberg got suspended on The View for sharing her opinion. I'm like, right. I-, I know you've gotten suspended before. Almost yes. everybody in media, it feels like, yes. who has strong opinions has gotten suspended for saying things well, that they actually believe. And I just think it's right. wrong, right? Like you can agree it, or disagree, it's, it's let wrong. people react. It's, it's crazy. It's wrong. It's wrong, but I've told you this on my show, and I'll tell you this to your audience right now. The one thing that I would only, the only thing that I would ask an abundance of people on the right, including yourself, is that be sensitive and appreciative of the platform you have because you can afford to disagree and keep your job. There are a lot of people that will lose their jobs for saying a lot of the things that you guys say, most of which I have no problem with. Okay, yeah, it's just the way that we look. And so if you have somebody and they're working under an umbrella where you have those kind of restrictions, okay, then what's the greater good here? I might need to be quiet about this because I'm about to roar about that. And the thing that I'm about to roar about is going to affect millions of lives. This one right here ain't going to affect folks so much. So it's not that big a deal. You make those judicious decisions sometimes depending on who you work for. Then we got advertisers and sponsors. Okay, yeah, you can say what you want, but we ain't going to spend our money on this platform because we don't like what you said. And so you got to be sensitive to what they said. Now, guys will acknowledge, well, they just got to be sensitive because the advertiser would have let them go or their job would have let them go. But then they're insulted for that. Well, wait a minute. If they don't have a job waiting for them and they got bills to pay, oh, all I have to do for these next 15 minutes is shut the hell up and not say anything about this issue? You live to fight another day. In life, we make those decisions all the time. There's nothing wrong with that when that's the reason. But there is a level of fearlessness that you have to have in this industry. People like me have it, you have it, and others. But it it took us a while. I mean, it didn't take us too long to get there. We understood what it is. We understood what we were going to be. But we also are smart enough to know where the true minefields lie. And there's always minefields that you have to avoid, 
even in our profession. Couple more. I want to hit you. I know you, this has been amazing. Sure. I think people are going to I'm love good. it. I'm good. When you lost, you had a you had a show. Quite frankly, um, yep. 2005 to 2007. A lot of yep. people out there getting their own show is the biggest dream they could possibly have. You said you told your mom after your knee injury that she had to pay for on her own health insurance. I'm going to be on TV. You worked your ass off. Take those jobs, $15,300, $400 a week, uh, $15,300 a year. You get a show. It only lasts for a year. And then you're off ESPN. What were your thoughts when you got to that pinnacle and then you kind of got it yanked out from underneath you? Did you think you would get another shot? Was that a dark time for you to have success and then have it coupled so quickly with a loss? It was a very dark time. Um... You know, when I first got the job, first of all, I was scared to death because I never hosted the show in my life. And my older sister, Linda's like, you know, she gets mellow and all of that stuff. And when I told her I was scared, she looked at me and said, oh, we are punk now. That's what we are. We are punk now. We scared. We scared. I mean, that's what you're doing. That's not the brother I know. I mean, you should be ashamed of yourself, you know? And, and I was like, holy shit, I couldn't believe she said that to me. And I was like, all right, I accept the challenge. And then when I did the show, I did 327 shows interviewed nearly 800 guests, had practically everybody on there but Tiger Woods and Michael Jordan. And when it got canceled, I had taken over as executive producer the previous six months and the ratings had gone up about 23%. So I certainly um, certainly was a bit disconcerted about that, but I also understood business. It was in New York, inside the Penotel, right across the street from Madison Square Garden. It cost a lot of money to have a show there. And the ratings that I was generating didn't justify the cost to produce the show on a daily basis. And so understanding the business climate, um, that that hurt. But nevertheless, I had other jobs for ESPN. It was when they came to me a year later and told me that they didn't want me anymore, that I wasn't going to be under contract with them at all. That's when it was very, What was very that dark. conversation like? What, what, what was that moment like for you when that happened? The, one of the executives for ESPN met me in Stanford, Connecticut met me at in the lobby at the restaurant at the Marriott Hotel. I believe it's off of Route 15, if I remember correctly. And he sat me down, and I had received a heads up from somebody an hour earlier that they were meeting with me to let me know that my contract wasn't going to be renewed. And so this one executive met with me, and um, he told me that my contract wasn't going to be renewed. It's all in my book, Straight Shooter, Memoirs, Second Chances, and First Takes which I'm proud to say is a New York Times bestseller. And it was there in the book that I wrote. He sat down, he met with me. He said, very matter of factly, um, we've decided that we're not going to bring you back. We're not going to renew your contract. Um, And this was not a unilateral decision. So he basically said that you're not coming back and it's because a collection of us don't want you anymore. And I remember how devastated I was, but I tried to hide it. And then what happened was, is that um, I said to him, who knows, you know, I said, I thank you for everything. I appreciate it. I'm sorry it didn't work out, but who knows, maybe I'm fortunate and lucky enough to get back some, come back someday. And he said, yeah, just shrugged it off. And then um, I was eating my salad and I said, I don't mind eating right here. Can I finish my salad? He said, sure. And he got up and he walked to the other side of the room and left me sitting there eating by myself. And what it said to me was that they wanted nothing to do with me. 
And that was devastating. So I, I was driving home, and then I pulled over on one of those mobile gas station rest stops while I was driving back to New York. And all I did was take both of my hands and bury my face in my hands because I knew it was over, and I had no prospects, zero. I didn't, um, you know, I wasn't knowledgeable. I was stupid. I wasn't knowledgeable enough about the industry. Um, I didn't prepare myself to have to to lose everything. Um, I went through all of that, and when I went through all of that, it was incredibly scary because I was an expecting dad. That's when um, my ex was was pregnant at the time, and so you know when that happened, it was like, oh my god! And so all of a sudden, everything is flashing before my eyes. I'm unemployed. Um, I have no prospects. And I'm about to be a dad. And unintentionally, am I going to be my father? Am I going to be somebody that's not going to be paying the bills and not going to be able to provide for my family? Or is, is He chose not to. I was in a position where I had nothing. All I had was my savings. And fortunate enough for me, I had saved up a few hundred thousand dollars. So I had some money to live off of. But it was, in, it was without question the scariest time of my life. How long did it take you to get back on your feet? Because I've been fired. I bet that almost everybody out there who's listening to us right now has lost a job at some point. It's a more debilitating feeling when you have kids that are responsible for you or a family that's responsible for you. Right. Uh, because it just, it, it takes like, it just absolutely zaps your soul uh, in many right. ways. Uh, and most people are not fortunate enough, as you mentioned, to have tons of savings. So it's not like you can just retire. I mean, I'm get, I'm doing right. the math here. You're roughly 42, 43 years old when this happened. So, yes. you know, it's not like you're close to retirement or Medicare or anything like that. Like you got to get on your feet and get back. How long did it take? 10 months, 10 and a half months to be exact. Um, I was unemployed the whole time. Um, I was living off my savings the whole time. And ultimately, um, I ultimately got a job. I had a former agent who came back into my life just to help me get back on my feet. His name is Steve Mountain, based out of Philadelphia. He represents a lot of hockey players. Um, I'll never forget him as long as I live. And eternally grateful to him for helping to get me back on my feet. And uh, he ultimately got me a job at Fox Sports Radio. I had gone from making $1.3 million to making zero to now making $360,000. And so for me... You know, um, it was just about getting started and getting back into the mix um, and putting myself in a position to resurrect my career. And I was hell bent on doing just that. And, you know, while I was there at Fox Sports Radio, I was the one who broke the story that LeBron James would be taking his talents to South Beach. I had broken that story weeks before anybody else had it, that he would be joining Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh in Miami uh, to play for the Miami Heat. And so when I did that, the, the sports world took notice and they were reminded of the kind of contacts and resources that I have. Um, and as a result, um, a guy by the name of Dave Roberts, who's the boss at ESPN, one of the bosses at ESPN, uh, was always a champion of mine. He was running ESPN radio in New York. Um, and he had asked me to come back and he had to convince the honchos to let me come back. And when they let me come back, it was two things that happened. First of all, you have a radio show. You know this, Clay. If you got like a two-hour radio show in a media market like New York, you're going to make about three to 400000 Well, yep. I had a two-hour radio show in New York, and then immediately following that, a two-hour radio show in L.A. And combined, I was making 400000 That's all they would pay. Yeah. Me. 
And Dave Robinson said to me, I know this is wrong. I know this sucks. It's a low number, but you're one of the best ever. And you're going to come back here and you're going to show them that you can kick ass. And when you do that, we'll have no choice but to take care of you. Take this opportunity. And I left out one important nugget. As you know, I've been number one with first take on morning television, sports television for 12 consecutive years and counting. I was prohibited from being on television. So when they brought me back, they wouldn't allow me on ESPN television. The same boss wow. that let me go brought me back, but I was prohibited and restricted. I could not show up on television. So from essentially May of 2009 to April of 2012, People don't realize I wasn't on sports television. If you wanted to see me, you saw me on the air talking politics for MSNBC, Fox News, and CNN. That's when you saw me on television, and I didn't get paid a dime for any of those appearances. So when you see the success of First Take now, two parts. Mm -hmm. When did you think yeah. to yourself, okay, we got something? Because you had had a television show before. And yeah. second part, uh, when did you start to feel like, okay, I can breathe and enjoy it? And let me, uh, let me tell you why I asked that. Sure. I like to throw on the television and watch sometimes people without the sound on at all. I did early sports talk radio. So, you know, I'd be watching the news to make sure I didn't miss anything early morning with our friend Julie Talbot's show. Uh, she's phenomenal. And Best. I felt like Great. I could tell. She's, she's amazing. I felt like I could tell who truly loved their job by just facial expressions and the fun that they seem to be having on air because it's contagious. So when did you know you had something? And when did you feel like, okay, they're not going to take it away from me. I can really enjoy it. Or do you still in the back of your mind think to yourself, oh, they could still take this away from me like they did it before? Well, I know we had something special when Skip and I catapulted to number one on ESPN2 in one month. And within one year, we were number one in the mornings, period. And we've never relinquished that spot ever since. That's the answer to the first question. The second question yep. is, no, I never feel like I have it. I always feel like they're going to take it away. It's one of the reasons I have my own podcast, my own YouTube channel. I built my own, I'm building my own production company. Um, even now, as we sit here tonight, I'm so... I have a very close relationship with everybody from the CEO, Bob Iger, to Jimmy Pitaro, the president, who both of them have been absolutely wonderful to me and what have you. But Clay, they know. I don't assume they're going to want me. My contract's up in 18 months. And I can tell you right now, I'm not planning on staying. I hope to stay. I want to stay. But make no mistake about it. I will never get over how they let me go. Never. And as far as I'm concerned, they means everybody. It's not about ESPN. It's about corporate America at the snap of a finger, particularly, particularly rather in this day and age, whether it's Disney, whether it's Spotify recently, whether it's Amazon, it's whomever you want to point to. We see cuts taking place all the time. And that is why I am so grateful. I can't even tell you how ecstatic I am. First of all, somebody like yourself doing what you do with your show without kick. I respect your vision. I respect the fact that you're a person that went out there and built your own stuff. I got mad respect for that. I don't know about everybody else, but I know I respect it. I'll tell you somebody else I respect, Pat McAfee. I can't thank Pat McAfee yep. enough for coming to ESPN because thank him 
for setting the model. You know, you want ESPN, you want something turnkey. You want somebody that comes with their own established product, okay, that they own, that they operate, that they can license to you. And all you got to do is turn the key. But that's what I did. I built my own television studio out of my own pocket in New Jersey, my own studio. I just opened it three weeks ago. This is my home studio here, but I built my own studio, okay? I came seven figures out of my own pocket and built it, okay? I got my own YouTube channel. I'm not playing around. I'm not going to sit around. I will never, ever, ever in life again sit around and wait, praying that whether it's Disney and ESPN or somebody else praying that I get something from them. I'm going to make sure and exhaust myself doing everything that I can to have something to offer. That way, if they don't want it, somebody else will. And it absolutely positively breeds from what transpired to me in 2009. I woke up one day and I had four jobs when I woke up that morning. And that afternoon, I had zero. That will never, ever happen to an unprepared Stephen A. Smith again. It could happen to anybody. It could happen to me again, but not while I'm unprepared. I'm always going to be prepared to be gone. That's that why never change That's why I started OutKick. That's why I started OutKick, because I, w- I didn't want to ever be in that position where somebody could sit across from me and say, you're not employed anymore, and I couldn't take care of my family. That, that was that's the right. reason. So I, I totally understand the motivation. Is it important to you? You mentioned Pat McAfee. Um, and I always say I root for everybody in media to make more money on each new contract, just like right. probably every starting quarterback in the NFL roots for the guy mm-hmm. whose contract's up to make more. Heck, I hope you get uh, unbelievable numbers. I hope I pick up the newspaper. I still like to read old school newspapers. And I see how much money you got. Is it important to you based on the way the first time ended at ESPN that you are the highest paid person on ESPN given the work that you're doing for them? Do you think that should be the case? Yes. I'm not stuttering. Hell yes. That's absolutely true. Now, I respect the fact if they feel differently, um, it's not going to be animosity. It's not going to be something where I'm looking at them and I feel like I got screwed. It's a business. Um, And I understand that and I'm a big boy. But I don't believe it's because of what transpired in 2009. That's water under the bridge. The same bosses that let me go. I'm friends with them now. They explained a lot. They highlighted for me what I did wrong, what role I played. My own mother looked me in the face and said, when are you going to look at yourself? It's real easy to point the finger at them, but you're trying to tell me you didn't deserve. You may not have deserved to be fired, but would you have wanted somebody like you working for you the way you may have acted towards your bosses at that time in 2009? You were a bit out of control. So my, my own mother told me that. So I don't blame ESPN for that. But here's the thing. I've changed. I've changed for the better. I grew up. And more importantly, I've mastered my own business. In the world of sports television, Clay Travis, I've been number one for 12 years. Come April 1st, we'll mark 12 consecutive years I've been number one. And not only have I been number one every year, I've been number one every week and every month of every year for the last 12 years. You don't get to say that about too many people. Um, I look at whether it's Pat McAfee, it's Mike Greenberg, it's Scott Van Pelt, it's Troy Aikman, it's Joe Buck, it's Kirk Herbstreet, the list goes on and on. I'm so honored to have the colleagues that I have 
that I work with at ESPN every day. I look at other people in the business. I got a bunch of friends at FS1. You know what Michael Irvin's there, Keyshawn Skip, uh, Richard Sherman, Rob Parker, Chris Boussard. The list goes on and on. Even LaShawn McCoy and Emmanuel Acho and, and Joy Taylor with her fabulous self. The list goes on and on and on. But let me tell you something. I'm the one that's been number one. And at the end of the day, it would be nice for one day for this man to stand before everyone and be like, this is not, I'm number one. And this says I'm number one. Now one would argue that that may have been the case years ago before, because I got my money and then Troy Aikman, I'm sorry, not Troy Aikman, the Tony Romo got his from CBS or whatever the case may be, but I'm not just a talent. I'm a business. I have my own production company. Like you said, I've got my own YouTube channel. I've got my own show. It's not even just a podcast. It's a show with a fully loaded television studio. That's what I built for myself. You know, that can go linear or digital. The list goes on and on. I'm doing all of these things. I'm not doing all of that to be in second place. I'm not doing all of that to look up at somebody else and see that they're making more than me when I'm producing superior ratings and revenue. No, I'm not doing that. And I'm not apologizing for anybody for it. So it's not. Um, I've been treated incredibly well by ESPN. I expect to continue to be well treated well by ESPN. Again, I've got great relationships and what have you, but this is a business and Disney has a right to run its business the way it sees fit. ESPN does as well, but if they do, so do I. I hope that we're able to work it out. I'm confident that we will because I'm incredibly happy there, but we'll see. He's Stephen A. Smith. I always like to ask this question back when I practice law. And I always sound, sometimes it led to really interesting answers and depositions. I'd say last question. What did I not ask you that you wish I had asked that you'd like to be able to say uh, to this audience now? Is there anything else out there that you think to an audience that may not be that familiar with you other than watching you occasionally on first take and having seen you over the years? What else do you wish they knew about you? After all I've accomplished, what do I still dream about? And I have aspirations. Think Antoine Fuqua, who's the director and producer of some of Denzel's films, The Equalizer, Antoine Fisher, uh, Olympus Has Fallen, stuff like that. Think uh, Jerry Bruckheimer with some of the fabulous, sensational work he's done over the years. Think about Dick Wolf, the fabulous, incomparable Dick Wolf, stuff like that. Who knows whether I'll ever be blessed and fortunate enough to pull that off. But I do have a strong desire to build content. I want to have my own network. I want to have my own production company where I'm doing scripted and unscripted content in both television and film. I do have an aspiration to do those things. And more importantly, you know, when you get to a certain point, uh, Clay, and you get a certain age, you know, it's not just the accomplishments that are important. It's the fact that you're able to benefit others along the way. When I think about Shannon Sharp coming to first take and I think about how great he's done, um, I, 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 I'm prideful about that. I'm proud of him. I'm proud of Ryan Clark and what he's doing with Inside the NFL. I'm proud of Marcus Spears and what he's doing on Monday's NFL Countdown. Dan Olofsky calling Monday Night Football Games. Mad Dog Russo telling me his career was resurrected because of me. I don't believe that for one second because he's a Hall of Famer on he's his been, own. But I really he's been fabulous, him. by the way. You've he's put been, together a good, uh, good team. Yeah, I handpicked everybody. And so, you know, the Molly Karams, the Kimberly Martins, the Monica McNutts, the Mina Kimes. 
I'm just really, really proud. It's diversity, it's white, it's black, it's male, it's female. The list goes on and on. And to me, my goal is to make sure, because I remember when I said this, I said this to Swagoo, who's Marcus Spears. I said it to Ryan Clark. I said it to Shannon Sharp. I said, if you're not better off later than you were when you first arrived, I have failed you. It's my job. I'm the point guard for first take. It's my job to make sure that everybody succeeds, not just me. And that's what I aim to achieve. That's what I aim to accomplish. Stephen A. Smith's been fabulous. I know you're busy. We've been talking about this for a while, but I think people are going to love it. Thanks for having me on your show, and thanks for returning the favor. Man, my pleasure, man. All the best to you. We'll talk soon. You take care of yourself, all right? You take care of you and your family as well. It's Stephen A. Smith. I'm Clay Travis. Hope you all loved it.